This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Robert Louis Wilkin is the William R. Kennan Professor Emeritus of the History of Christianity at the University of Virginia. Dr. Wilkin earned his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago and has taught at the University of Notre Dame, Fordham, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. In addition to his long career as a distinguished teacher, Dr. Wilkin is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's a former president of the American Academy of Religion. He's a founding member of the North American Patristic Society, and he has also served as chairman of the Institute on Religion and Public Life. He's often associated with the intellectual circle around the American journal First Things. He's published a host of books on the history of Christianity, including The Christians and the Romans, The Spirit of Early Christianity, The First Thousand Years, A Global History of Christianity, and his most recent book, which is what we're going to discuss today. Liberty and the Things of God, The Christian Origins of Religious Freedom. I'm looking forward to my conversation with Professor Robert Lewis Wilkin. Professor Wilkin, you wrote this book entitled Liberty and the Things of God, The Christian Origins of Religious Freedom, in a time in which the ideas of religious freedom and religious liberty are uh, essentially contested. And uh, so you knew when you wrote this book that you were entering into not only a study of history— and you were not only making an argument, you were making an argument in a very contested terrain. Uh, how did the book come about? Well, as you know, my primary field of study and research and writing has been early church and, and medieval to a certain extent. And uh, I knew for years that there were several statements of uh, early Christian writers Tertullian of Carthage in the early 3rd century, and then Lactantius in the early 4th century, that addressed the question of religious belief. And in both cases, they argue that uh, religion is an inner conviction, and therefore it can't be coerced by external means. And of course, they're, they're drawing on the biblical uh, writings, which say that in so many different ways. But what happened was, and this was seven or eight years ago, as religious freedom was in the air, I discovered that these texts, uh, specifically by Tertullian and Lactantius, were being cited in the 16th century by Christians who were being persecuted by other Christians. And... uh, I also discovered that they began to be part of a dossier of quotations that supported the idea that religion could not be coerced because it was an inner conviction. And so what that allowed me to do was to move from the early church to the 16th century, and eventually I was led into the 17th century, to see how what had been received from earlier writers was adapted, uh, modified, expanded in light of the new circumstances of the 16th and the 17th century, because these texts, uh, as uh, central as they are, did not really uh, play much of a role in medieval Christianity. The ideas uh, were passed on, but they weren't actually cited. And so that really became then the um, the logic of the book. And... Um, I, I discovered that uh, 
for example, Sebastian Castellio, who wrote a a very significant work uh, in criticizing John Calvin um, for uh, participating or at least supporting the execution of uh, Michael Servetus. In his work, he quotes uh, Lactantius. And then I discovered, just much to my delight, was that the passage from Tertullian was actually cited and debated by Roger Williams and John Cotton. Yes. Uh, Those are only a couple of the instances. And so um, what I wanted to do was to try to show what the deep background was and then extend the story into the modern period where religious freedom really becomes a major topic of debate and discussion and basically the ideas that we still live with were were formed given their definitive form in in the late 16th and the early 17th century so that's the story of the book well uh there is a story to a book and the book tells a story and the book basically also makes a very important argument or more properly you do through the book and that is that the uh, modern conceit of religious liberty as an enlightenment gift is uh, is fundamentally flawed. It's uh, it, it's it's wrong. And as a matter of fact, many people looking to your book have contrasted it with a statement made by Robert Kagan in the Washington Post, in which he said, "Only with the advent of enlightenment liberalism did people begin to believe." that the individual conscience as well as the individual's body could be or should be inviolate and protected from the intrusions of church and state, end quote. But you make very clear that's just fundamentally false. It is fundamentally false, and I can tell you it gave me great delight to read that in the Post because it uh, uh, made me realize that what I was saying had not only a historical significance but a current significance. What I was thinking about more were the Enlightenment writers that are often cited, and also Supreme Court cases having to do with uh, school busing uh, or Pledge of the Allegiance, where the the historical background that religious freedom or liberty of conscience came about because of the the consequences of religious disputes and uh, in the 17th and 18th century. And so it was really kind of a... Uh, a, a reaction. It was a reaction to Christians squabbling with one another, and the uh, Enlightenment writers, and then of course our founding fathers, didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so, toward the end of the book, I actually discuss uh, uh, James Madison and um, his famous uh, memorial um, that uh, is often cited. And I do have a little section on Tertullian because, much to my delight. I learned, I discovered that that Jefferson knew the text from Tertullian that I began the book with. Well, I, I uh, did a lot of my work uh, in uh, in the area of patristics, and uh, Tertullian is one of those towering figures. But I have to admit to you, I had never really connected Tertullian uh, and the issue of religious liberty as you have, and I certainly didn't connect Tertullian and Thomas Jefferson. But uh, <laughs> you do so convincingly. No one did, and one of the things I learned, I mean, I'm not a historian of the 18th century, but I wrote uh, three or four of the major Jefferson scholars and said, where did, did Jefferson learn this text? 
I think he learned it probably from from an American, from a Baptist a preacher in the 18th century, and none of them could uh, give me an answer. And also, none of them seemed very interested, <laughs> which was also surprising. But it it was certainly uh, a text that was that was floating about. And um, but I couldn't whether it was Leyland or somebody like that I don't know but I couldn't really nail it down, and and I don't mean to say that that Tertullian was a direct influence on on Jefferson because I think Jefferson learned about this later. Uh, I think the influence on Jefferson comes from other writers, John Locke and uh, um, other people that I discuss. Well, you know, out in secular society and in the academy. The, uh, the the general historical worldview for the better part of the last 150 years has been, uh, even with the use of use of phrases like uh, dark ages, is that uh, the history is basically of uh, darkness until the Enlightenment. Yeah, that's what, that's what Kagan says, and I was astounded. I mean, he's a very able and learned guy. Um, I don't know uh, what he has read over the years, but that particular idea is fairly uh, uh, well established now, and people assume it, even though I think it's wrong. But um, he went much further than that. You know, he, he just says there was nothing until the Enlightenment. Right. Well, that feeds the, that that uh, uh, well uh, that basically fuels the the modern uh, self conception of. Uh, and, and I don't want to put this in just political terms, whether left or right, but it, it just just in the. Uh, certitudes uh, held by people in the modern age who consider them to, who consider themselves quite at home in the modern age, um, they think themselves to have thought every good idea uh, out of a vacuum. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that is a too uh, widespread a view, and uh, I think the more one studies uh, the history of our civilization, the more you realize that that um, basic conceptions that govern our, our everyday life and understanding really go back to the Bible and to the, the way the Bible was understood um, by early Christian, medieval, and Reformation thinkers. I mean, I think one of the points of the book, uh, and we might want to discuss this a bit, is to try to show that the basic notion of liberty of conscience is not the result of any one particular Christian tradition. It's something that is part of a, of a common tradition that all shared in the 16th and 17th century, and then applied it, of course, to their own unique situations. Um, and I even have a chapter dealing with um, uh, Catholic thinkers, and um, this was relatively new, inf- new knowledge for me, um, a man by the name of Robert Persons, who uh, because the Catholics were being persecuted in, in early 17th century England, he says that how can the king uh, say we can't believe, we can't breathe the air? The air is free for everyone. And in the same thing, how can the king say that we can't believe what we at our deepest uh, uh, interior realize is, is the case? How can we, how can't we uh, live by that? I do want to get to that uh, in in just a bit. As a matter of fact, uh, working on a different uh, project of my own, I uh, I've been looking at the fact that many of the arguments made by the uh, the Protestants under Mary Tudor 
uh, right. were uh, were also made by the uh, Roman Catholics under Edward the Sixth. That's true, uh, and I don't go into great detail, but I I try to show that there is a, a continuity of thought which you can tr- trace well, from Thomas More, but but actually one of the most spectacular uh, texts that I I discovered was a community of Franciscan sisters who were in Nuremberg, which is one of the first cities that uh, adopted the Reformation. And when uh, the magistrates decided they would now uh, basically enforce Lutheran ideas and practices, these women, uh, they closed down their monastery. But one of the women, a, a woman named Caritas Pirkheimer, began to keep a journal. And we now have that journal. And so she tells about how sort of step by step they began to dismantle the, uh, the monastery. And it's a fascinating story. But the most extraordinary thing is she appeals to liberty of conscience. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, if, if we may, conscience. Because one of the points you make in the book uh, has theological uh, dimensionality to it, far even beyond the issue of religious liberty. You talk about the fact that with biblical Christianity, indeed the Apostle Paul, uh, conscience takes on a new meaning for Christians, uh, quite different than it meant for many of the ancients. Yes, uh, that's a very important point in the book. Namely, the term conscience comes from the Latin word for knowledge, scientia, with con, that means with knowledge, and it basically was understood to mean consciousness, that is an awareness of what one has done. And Paul uses the term conscience in that way in Romans 2, um, where he speaks about the Gentiles following the law, even though they don't have the Jewish law. But later in Romans, and uh, more particularly, not in Romans, but 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about conscience as something that guides your action. And and early Christian writers, uh, most notably uh, Origen of Alexandria, take conscience then as a kind of uh, pedagogue, a, a tutor, that is a guide as to what one should do, and that then becomes the normative use within Christianity. But then what happens is that uh, in the 17th century in, in England, the, um, uh, the crown and the magistrates began to say, well, you can also whatever you want in your conscience, but you still have to follow the rules of the Church of England. And um, one writer, the, uh, uh, John Owen, uh, dissenter, uh, says, no, no, conscience has to do with action. It has to do with what you actually do. And so therefore, uh, it, you should be free to follow your conscience in the kinds of worship practices that you wish to follow. Um, very significant, I think, in terms of the understanding of conscience, because it's easy to dispense conscience as just what one holds in one's heart. Sure. And you can do that, uh, do that, uh, uh, you know, uh, as much as you wish, but just don't think it applies to what you're supposed to do publicly. And which is, of course, the issue that we really face today. It's it's whether people publicly, in terms of their actions, you know, in schools or hospitals can act on what they believe. Right. And um, 
So that, that, was, that was very, very significant for me. Well, it, it is, I think, another uh, signal contribution of your book. And by the way, it takes us, as you pointed out in the beginning, this takes us right into the 2020 U.S. presidential campaign, where <laughs> at least some of the people uh, running on the Democratic side, honestly, uh, are defining religious liberty in such restrictive terms that it basically means whatever is uh, is in your heart with no public significance whatsoever, no connection between uh, conscience as uh, as moral conviction and then action uh, in the external world. Which is actually, that's very true. And, and of course, uh, the language that is used uh, is that people have freedom of worship. Right. Or do not have freedom of worship. You know, it's one thing to have freedom of worship in the sense you can do what you want in your church, but it's not something that's going to apply to questions that go on in the hospital when you have an abortion or something of that sort. That's right. That freedom of worship language has found its way by deliberate action into official United States government communications. Uh, it, has, it has indeed. No, it actually goes back to Roosevelt. Um, you know, his four freedoms, right. one of them is freedom of worship, but it's been turned to have uh, another dimension to it, which basically negates the practice. Um, so, un, un, well, anyway, you asked the questions. I'm not going to start giving you a lecture. <laughs> well, no, that's uh, that, that would be uh, an honor as well. But uh, I do have a lot of questions. And uh, I, I want to follow, at least uh, to some degree, the outline of your book. And, and that means I want to go back to Tertullian again. And I want to ask you the question, if when Tertullian talks about freedom or writes about freedom of religion, uh, I'm thinking here of uh, Alastair McIntyre's notion of a uh, social imaginary, uh, of a a world of meaning in which this means something in this social context. It might mean something different in another social or intellectual context. So to put the, the matter bluntly, when Tertullian talks about freedom of religion, to what degree is he talking about what we might define? as religious freedom? I don't think he is. Um, he uses the phrase freedom or liberty of religion in Latin, libertas religionis, one time. Um, but what I think he is, is stating is simply that people who have other religious ideas should be free to act on the basis of these. But he doesn't really have any any conception of religious freedom. In fact, one of the main points that I try to make in the book is that religious freedom is not the result of what the Church Fathers wrote in the 2nd and 3rd, 3rd and 4th century. It is the result of developments that depend on that, but are not in fact there. So you can't really trace it back. It's a long process of growth and development and modification. Um, So, I don't think it's helpful to overstate the case, even though the key idea, at least one of the key ideas, is is present. And it's, it is interesting, you know, that one of the texts that's used later on um, is from Psalm um, uh, 51, uh, what God desires is a contrite heart. And so once you have that kind of language, you're, you're talking about the nature of religious conviction, but you're not necessarily setting forth a, a conception of religious freedom. You're just simply stating something that Christians um, saw more clearly than anybody else, because you don't really have others making that kind of point.
History is itself a conversation. The writing of history, the study of history, is in one sense a conversation about that conversation. That conversation is always interesting. It is often controversial. As a matter of fact, on anything important, it's more generally controversial than not. But that also means that history is an argument, and one of the things I most appreciate about this most recent book by Professor Robert Lewis Wilkin is that he's making an argument, he intends to make an argument, and he makes a very important argument. In your uh, argument, you use a phrase that you trace through uh, better than anyone else I've I've ever encountered before, uh, the history of the church and, and frankly, Western society. And and that is the idea of the two swords. And uh, I, I was surprised how early in Christian history that emerged as clearly as, uh, as you demonstrate it did. Well, for very good reasons, because um, the first three, most of the fourth century, Christianity is a small, persecuted minority and has no political power. And um, so it's completely dependent on the ruling authorities. But in the fourth century, that changes with um, the conversion of Constantine. And as the emperors become Christians, they begin to get interested in trying to control what Christians actually do. And um, because it was assumed that that political authority had a responsibility in religious matters. And so eventually then there was going to be conflict. And the conflict came to a head uh, in the 5th and the 6th centuries. And of course the, the two figures then were on the one hand uh, the emperor and on the other hand the uh, the bishops but in particular the bishop of Rome and um, Gelasius who was a bishop of Rome at the end of the 5th century said to Anastasius the emperor he said you can't tell us what we are to do in religious and doctrinal matters and he then really sets down the notion of two authorities, or two powers. And, of course, behind that is the, is the passage, uh, the words of Jesus, and render unto Caesar the things that are of Caesar and the things uh, to God, the things that are of God. So that's really the beginning of it. But what I discovered, and, of course, it then runs throughout the whole Middle Ages because one of the main stories of the Middle Ages is the conflict between the, the pope and the emperor or the or the king but to my uh, astonishment and delight i discovered that in nuremberg again that when uh, the lutheran mag- when the magistrates became lutherans they took over the management of religious affairs in the in the city and one um, prominent citizen wrote a treatise uh and he uses the terms two swords, and he says that they have to be kept clear. They have to be kept distinct, that you can't use the political, the civil sword, to enforce religious matters. Well, then that gets picked up and um, becomes really a kind of main theme of all the writers on religious uh, freedom and liberty of conscience. Um, so again, it's a biblical idea 
Absolutely. And so when you, by the time you get to you know, Jefferson and his letter to uh, the Baptist and Danbury, and even though he uses the, the metaphor of, of a wall, the idea is commonplace. Uh, everyone agreed to that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, at least uh, amongst the founders. Uh, but uh, but religious liberty is still a very contested issue. And for example, uh, I think one of the issues is not very uh, commonly articulated amongst the political elites, but it's nonetheless true that you could not possibly imagine Muhammad saying, render unto Caesar uh, the things that are Caesar's and unto Allah the things that are Allah's, because it's uh, that 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 twofold uh, uh, distinction between the things rendered to Caesar and the things rendered only to God, that that is an innovation beyond the imagination of most modern Americans. Well, uh, going back to the historical point, the difference between Christianity and Islam is that Islam begins as a political form of religion, and it is spread as a religion that has political power, and it also spreads in some cases, in many cases, by the sword, whereas Christianity begins purely as a religious movement, only later. And so it's it's very difficult, and that's kind of the ongoing issue. Uh, uh, there's a book recently by Dan Philpot, maybe you saw it, um, and he really goes through how the modern Muslim states have had such difficulty dealing precisely with this issue. Um, so that's it's very distinctive to Christianity. It's not distinctive of Judaism either, because obviously the modern state of Israel, um, you know, has a limitation on certain regard with respect to this matter. But that has to do with the the whole history of ancient Israel. Sure. I mean, the kings, um, and you know, they were they they were priest-like figures, um, and course, medieval Christianity, the bishop becomes a priest-like figure, but uh, that eventually is... But it, it continues on. Actually, one of the... the um, for me, one of the most uh, dramatic passages was uh, um, in the 16th century when um, a Frenchman around the year 1560, by that time the, the Calvinists, we call them the Huguenots, uh, were really beginning to uh, grow in France, he writes to a friend and he says, can you imagine that when we were young that there would be two religions practiced in one city? And think about yes. that for a moment. I mean, that is so unbelievable to a modern person where that's the only thing that we ever know is that you have more than one religion in a city. And so that shows you what, what really um, the the exponents of liberty of conscience and what they were contending against. And, and for a very long time, a very long time. So, for example, you mentioned the 16th century, and, and, and that, uh, that French statement was one I was going to ask you about just momentarily. You beat me to it, which is good. But uh, you had crowned heads such as Henry VIII, who uh, could not imagine a realm in which throne and altar were genuinely separated. And, and no. you, you concede in your book something that many others do not, and, and that is the fact that Henry VIII, for all of his, uh, well, let's just say, uh, conflicted issues, 
uh, he was deeply theologically concerned. Oh, of course. And and the thing is, is that it's not just the 16th century, it's the 17th century and the 18th century. And so by the uh, time of the American Revolution, England was still struggling with this because it was assumed. And it was only uh, in the 18th century that England begins to finally put laws on the books that give a place for dissenters. Uh, so it, 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 it very deep. And um, Well, to be intellectually honest, bring it to the United States, where even after the ratification of the Constitution, there were still questions about the extent to which religious liberty had to be respected by the individual states. Uh, some of them not settled until the 14th Amendment. That's true. Uh, and, and it's understandable. I mean, uh, when you think about it, it would be very nice to live in a city where everyone followed the same religion. I, I could see much uh, satisfaction in that. I mean, I realize all the arguments against it, but um, so that you would, uh, you'd feel part of a community that was not just civic, but was also religious. But that's, that's a dream that um, uh, that's never going to come back. No, it's never going to come back here, but I really appreciate you making the point the way you did, because that is actually the impulse in much of the world right now. Well, it is, and that's why Christianity is being persecuted So, um, in so many parts of the world. You know, most Christians don't realize that the 20th and 21st century is the time of the greatest persecution of Christians. I mean, the, the, the statistics year after year after year after year are, are really frightening. Indeed. I want to ask you to go back again, because uh, as, as a historical theologian, I, I, I have to wonder why in your book, even, even given the argument you're making, why is Augustine uh, such a shadow figure in your book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, for, for uh, one very simple reason, he's not a player in this debate. I do have... Uh, a few pages on him, and there are two things to say about Augustine. One is that when he was faced with a, a militant uh, dissent in the cities of uh, North Africa and present-day uh, uh, Tunisia, um, and he was unable by preaching and persuasion to um, bring them into line. And, and these, these were really um, uh, militant people. We would almost call them terrorists who were uh, killing bishops and so forth. And finally, he, he, he capitulates and, and, and says, let the uh, political power deal with them. And that, of course, has been a big stain on Augustine's memory. And you read the books on Augustine, they're always going to make a big point out of that. I'm not as troubled by that because uh, I think that uh, there were very good reasons why you needed to use some other kind of force beside uh, arguments. On the other hand, there's another side, to, uh, and I quote uh, a key passage from his gospel, a commentary on the Gospel of John, where um, he's discussing the text where Jesus says that uh, you should draw people to you. Um, and uh, the Latin word there, traho, you know, means you can actually draw them forcefully. And Augustine says, no, that's not what it means, because you can drag a person and force them to be 
to, to be baptized, but you can't force a person to believe. So Augustine actually says precisely what Tertullian and Lactantian says, yeah. but he says it in a commentary, and he's not really engaged in it. However, uh, Gregory the Great, you know, a century and a half later or more, Gregory the Great uses the basic idea that you get from Tertullian Lactantius to deal with the problem of Jews in cities that are now all Christian and whether they have to be respected. And he says they have to be respected. You can't force them. Um, and then the, probably the most striking case is the, the famous uh, uh advisor to Charlemagne when Charlemagne, I mean, Charlemagne was brutal in terms of missionizing the, the Germans and um, forcing them to be Christians. And uh, Alcuin writes him, well, that is, you can't do that. You can't, you can't force people. So there are several instances where the early idea still is alive, but Augustine is just not a, a major player because in his situation, he did not find it necessary to make this appeal. That is with the Donatists. Yeah, let me let me make the argument, however, and this is just for fun and short. But uh, I would make the argument that uh, after the uh, the Apostolic Age and prior to the Reformation, the most important text related to these issues is actually Augustine's City of God, without which, uh, with the distinction between the two cities, I don't think you could have a lasting. A distinction between the two swords. So th- that would just be my argument on behalf of Augustine. Augustine was not facing the same issues, and, and you're very honest about that. Uh, but it's it's really hard to uh, understand how Luther and Calvin and the Puritans would come to understand uh, a distinction between earthly hopes and heavenly hopes. Yes, but I, I'm not sh- sure I would read. In fact, I know I would not read <laughs> the City of God that way. Uh, and I discuss uh, that particular matter in my my earlier book of the Spirit of Early Christian Thought, because in chapter 19, uh, book 19 of the City of God, Augustine says there has to be a common area that we work together. And um, so he realized that you couldn't draw such... I don't think the city of God is really an example of the two swords. I think it's a, it's a different kind of problem that he's dealing with. He's dealing with the way in which the corporate reality of the church and the corporate reality of the, uh, of the government, because of the needs of society, have to join hands in certain areas. But he makes it very clear that the worship of God has to be primary. So it's not at all uh, a modern notion. Nor is he a modern man, yeah, no, not by any means. But uh, but (laughs) as with Tertullian, people take an argument further than it was envisioned, imagined, or intended uh, by those who who make the argument originally. I want to get to another uh, important question in uh, the thesis of your book, and that is the fact that as you trace the story, We also have to make another distinction, and that is between liberty for religious communities and uh, uh, religious liberty as an individual right. Uh, Those also are two different things. They develop uh, in in different ways, sometimes in tandem, sometimes not. Well, I'm glad you bring that up, because uh, I think that's one of the most important things that I learned. And it it goes back to the very beginning of the Reformation, 
that uh, this man who wrote this book about the, the two swords, what he was uh, concerned about was the appearance of Anabaptist communities. And the Anabaptist communities, who were very radical, and they said, we can't go along with infant baptism. And they began to form their own communities, call and elect their own leaders, follow their own discipline, and basically cut themselves off from the the religious uh, institutions that govern the life of the rest of the community. It's a profound change because it introduces a wholly new understanding of the church as a voluntary society. And so one of the points that I make through the book is that, in fact, it's because of this that modern ideas about religious freedom developed. They weren't concerned. The, the, the best example of someone, of an individual, was the case of Servetus, who was burned in, in Geneva because he was a heretic. But all the debate in the late 16th century and the 17th century is about the rights of religious communities. And that's completely beyond the pale of what I think most people understand by, but that's the issue today. It's not about individual beliefs, it's about communities. And the first to to see that, I think most clearly, uh, were some Dutch writers. in uh, the late 16th century. And they said, well, okay, liberty of conscience is fine, but that's not the way religious communities are. Religious communities have to do with worship, they have to do with practice, they have to do with education. And then they used the phrase, and I was very pleased to find it, they have to have exercise of religion. They have to be able to do what they, and so, and, and, that then became really the issue. It was issue. It was issue in England, and it was an issue in, um, uh, in the, on the continent it was with, with, of course, the Calvinists. So I'm glad you bring it up because that seems to me to be. And, and I, you know, I've spoken in, in recent months um, uh, about this book in various places, and um, in, in some cases before uh, at Villanova Law School the other day. And and I made the point, you know, I don't think, that there, and I'm not a legal scholar, obviously, that I don't think there's much space within Ameri- American Jew- jurisprudence for such an idea that religious liberty and conscience have to do with the rights of communities. We we understand it only in terms of the rights of individuals, but today that is the issue. Yes, well, and uh, boy, this takes us back to some... Uh some interesting recent American history. Of course. Uh, uh, One of your friends uh, uh, of decades past and uh, others, uh, Peter Berger, Richard John Newhouse, writing about the importance of mediating institutions. The the, the left has hated the idea of of mediating institutions, uh, wanting nothing between the individual and the state. And uh, I I think that's one of the most profoundly problematic uh, issues of our time. No, and, and Richard and Peter were way ahead uh, when they wrote that book. Um, I remember very, very well uh, and uh, when they were just starting to think about it. And, and um, so that's, that really now is, I think, 
uh, you're right, once you get into the political realm, but also in the religious realm. Well, the church is a mediating, it's far more than that, it's the body of Christ, but it is also sociologically a mediating institution, which is one of the reasons why I think uh, there's so many who celebrate secularization and are doing everything they can to sideline the influence of uh, institutional Christianity. I agree completely, and, it, and that's why it's, it's essential for the uh, growth and the health of the church for there to be sound communities that people identify with. And uh, you, know, you know much better than I, because you move in a, in a world where you're dealing with uh, training seminarians and also with clergy, and you realize that the breakdown of the communities in certain parts of our countries, if not everywhere, has all sorts of consequences for people's lives. You know, when you don't Absolutely. have this, uh, um, and people have even brought that up in relationship to the uh, um, uh, the terrible tragedies in recent years, is that had there been community, a community of people in which uh, a young man um, was nurtured, people knew what he was doing, they were friends, he had friends, it's less likely that one is going to do something really extreme. But if you're alone or living on the internet with uh, these websites, uh, who knows what you're going to do? And we know what you're going to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, completely on your side on that. I want to ask you another question I'm asking as a Baptist. And so uh, I'll just put that right out there. This is. Uh, well, I was waiting for yes. this to come in. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you you uh, draw a great deal of attention to the contribution of the Baptists, uh, John Leland and uh, and Thomas Helwes in particular, and many others for kind of offering a, a quintessential uh, defense of religious liberty in a way that we moderns can understand. But in reading your book, I, I I had a question I wanted to ask you, and because of this conversation, I get to ask you. Uh, don't you think, and I'm saying this is a Baptist, so I'm loading the, the gun here. Uh, don't you think that the issue of believers' baptism is to a considerable degree what, uh, what, what, what kind of forced the Baptists to some of these conclusions before others? Oh, I'm not so sure of that. I, uh, <clears throat> I think what, what forced them, uh, well, first of all, there was the reality you take Thomas Helwes, um, uh, John Merton, uh, um, of course, Roger Williams. They, they were members of small, voluntaristic, intentional communities, believers' churches. And so that was their basic experience. And, of course, the condition for membership you know, was that you would be rebaptized. Uh, However, that's not the way they make the argument. They make the argument that the, the king has no right to interfere in the practices of people who have religious convictions. And um, they're simply building on what was already there, namely uh, this distinction between the two swords. And there's no question about, in fact, uh, reading Roger William. One of the things I, I, I should say this to you in terms of the Baptist, you know, I have a chapter or a section on, on John Locke, and, and I try to show that he's really much dependent on Christian uh, ideas. But the truth is, is that when I read books about John Locke, nobody seems to understand that he's saying things that Roger Williams had been saying. Yes. 
And it just astounds me that people are, most recently, maybe you saw the um, op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal a few, uh, uh, 10 days ago. Absolutely, yes. About a, about a new, and uh, and I wrote the the author of that, and I said to him, you know, I said, there's another side to this whole thing. And um, it seems unaware, he, he uses the frame in this new uh, manuscript, he uses the frame, a soul rape. Soul rape is a word from Roger Williams, mm. um, and 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 I actually quote a passage from Roger Williams on the the ends of civil government as opposed to the ends of society of, of religious communities, and that's exactly what uh, what John Locke says. So um, I have to give a and then of course I make the point that the first person to say that if you're going to take this liberty of conscience seriously, it's got to apply to everybody. It's got to apply to the Catholics, but it's got to apply to the Jews and the Muslims, and that was a Baptist. Yes. So um, I give a, a loud shout-out for the Baptists in this. Uh, I, I don't think that you that's do. where the... the uh, I think that the they're, they're working with material that has been handed on and received and worked over by other Christians, but yeah, I don't clearly, deny that at all. I don't deny yeah. that at all. And I appreciate your, uh, your attention to the Baptists. Just as a Baptist theologian, I want to make the point that what Baptists uh, kind of in the believer's church tradition that also, you know, came before the Baptists with the Anabaptists, but, but in the believer's church tradition, uh, there was uh, the absolutely different point of view from someone like a Richard Hooker, in which case, oh, yeah. uh, as you say, you know, to be an Englishman is to be a member of the Church of England. And along come the Baptists saying, no, uh, there's no infant baptism. You're not a member of uh, the Church right. until you make a public profession. And then the entire Church is a believing Church. Uh, I think that clarified issues for Baptists. Yes, I, I think it did. And, of course, Richard Hooker is, is a prime example. In fact, as you know, I quote him in the... Uh, uh, but on terms of the infant baptism, you got to remember one thing about me, uh, I was raised a Lutheran. <laughs> oh, I remember that well, yes. When I met you, you were a Lutheran, I believe. So, uh, yeah, and Richard was too. And so uh, infant baptism is kind of in our genes. <laughs> no, I understand that. And uh, I, and I, I guess that's why, uh, uh, as a Baptist, I, I see a distinction there. And, and by the way, as a Baptist who finds my theological identity— and Baptist identity out of the Reformation, and yeah. uh, and beyond that, out of uh, apostolic Christianity. So uh, that's why, by the way, I have for so long uh, appreciated your writings and your contribution, and uh, frankly, I think I've read every one of your books, and well, most of all of your articles or essays I've been able to find. Well, I, I am very appreciative of that. I mean, I, I've had a high regard for what you've been doing, and um, um, so... Well, it's an ongoing conversation. We're dependent upon one another, but we're particularly dependent upon scholars like yourself who've written books like this that, uh, I dare say, it, it will, will exert an influence uh, far beyond your own lifetime. And uh, I, I appreciate the fact it's published by Yale University Press. It's a part of the ongoing cultural conversation. And uh, I think it's the most important book written on religious liberty in a very, very long time. I don't say this as a compliment. I say that with gratitude. I'm very thankful this book will, of necessity, reset the conversation amongst the people who care about the truth. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, yeah. um, it is a work of love, and um, 
I, I worked over it, you know, for what, seven or eight years. Tried to write for readers. That's one of the things I learned very early on. And, uh, you know, the, you know, the story about scholars, they only want to see where their name appears in the, in the index. And so they can go and see where you quoted them. The, the story about, um, I think it was Bill Buckley and Norm Podhoritz and, uh, Bill Buckley sent a book of his to Norm and Norm Podhoritz. And he knew the first thing he would do would be to look in the, uh, in the index and right where Podhoritz's name was, Buckley had written, hi, Norm. Oh, that's fantastic. And sounds just like uh, William F. Buckley. <laughs> I, I have a couple of uh, final questions just to ask you. Uh, sure. And, and it has to, they're, they're really one question with, uh, with, with two different predicates. Uh, what do you believe is the most important uh, lesson you learned in doing this research for the church and then for American society? Well, I think the most important thing is that we can't live without memory that memory gives us uh, a sense of who we are, where we have been, and what life is that we find most fulfilling. And I think that more than anything else is, is being lost in American society today, that the young people are not given the kind of education that they learn to love uh, what they have been, that they have received and to make it their own. So uh, I would say, um, and I know I've, uh, I think I've written a little bit on that, but not much. And, but it, it, uh, I, uh, I think without memory, uh, there is no, uh, fully satisfying life. Yes. My mother, um, um, she was elderly. She was suffering from depression, and, and the damn fool doctors at that point were recommending um, shock treatment, and we agreed and went to it. And she lost her memory. So she lost who she was, and it was a terrible thing uh, because she lived, you know, quite a while beyond that. So my answer is very simply: memory. Without memory, there is no and for Christianity, and that's why. We're so blessed to have, you know, such a long and rich tradition and, and yes. to have the scriptures. I Absolutely. Mean, um, you know, I pray the Psalms in the morning and I pray them in, in the evening and I pray them when I go to bed. And, and I realize that so much of praying the Psalms is just having these words become part of your own life. I know Augustine says in the Confessions, uh, I think it's the beginning of Book 12, he says, the words of the Bible, of your holy scriptures, pound my heart. Not the ideas, you know, the words. And it's the words that we want to hold on to because without the words. And so then we just, I am. Uh, I'm getting on another topic. I mean, that was what the, the historical critics did us in on that one. Well, they uh, uh, taught uh, uh, us uh, the yes. Bible. They, they did their they, best. They, they did their best, and, and it was a great run, but what they didn't 
really remember was that the Bible was not a book from the past, and that it's and so when preaching, I unfortunately I can't preach anymore. The most important thing is to lead people into the Bible and to let them think in the terms of the Bible, not to translate it into something else. But now I'm getting off. <laughs> that was worth it. Trust me. Yeah. So no. So memory, and and I I'm so grateful to. Um, for and it was reading the church fathers and and you know that uh, in my in my last years as a graduate instructor, it was the evangelical students who were coming to do doctoral work because they learned that the church fathers took the Bible seriously, mm. and they actually uh, uh, Dwayne Lifton's son uh, uh, was a student of mine and he came wanting to work on Tertullian. Well, that is, uh, that's a happy news for us all. And uh, I say that as, uh, as president of a theological seminary. And again, Professor Robert Wilkin, thank you so much for joining me for Thinking in Public. It's been a great privilege. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Many thanks to my guest, Robert Lewis Wilkin, for thinking with me today. It was a fascinating conversation, the kind of conversation you can really only have with a serious individual of ideas, as Robert Louis Wilkin is. He also, just in terms of the decades of his life and his own scholarly work, has been long engaged in these issues. But when you think about it, one of the great tributes of his scholarly life is that he is still open to new questions he hadn't considered before. That's really what produced, by his own testimony, this most recent book, Liberty in the Things of God. That's the kind of aspiration we should all have at every stage of our lives, even after a very long scholarly or intellectual career. On the other side of long ministry and long life, after one is in the case of Professor Wilkin, a professor emeritus of the University of Virginia, to still be found asking questions, working on them, doing the serious work of thinking them through, and trying to communicate an argument based in that kind of scholarship, that's the kind of aspiration that should drive us all. And it makes me even more thankful for the fact we just had this conversation, a conversation that I could not have had with Professor Robert Lewis Wilkin 40 years ago because he hadn't thought these thoughts yet. He had not written this book yet. It's a reminder to us that every single one of us is not only embedded in an intellectual stream of conversation and concern, and investigation and scholarship and intellectual back and forth, it is also the fact that our own lives over time represent that very same kind of timeline. I also appreciated Professor Wilkins' generosity of spirit. One of the marks of true Christian scholarship is being continually open to the kinds of conversation that other scholars will ask. That graciousness was very evident even in this conversation today. But as I conclude, I simply have to come back to the fact that this book is, as I said earlier, I believe one of the most important, indeed, I would say the most important book on religious liberty to have been written and published in recent decades. And now, in a situation in which religious liberty is so seriously imperiled even within the United States and our American constitutional order. For that reasons and for more, I can only hope that this new book by Professor Robert Lewis Wilkin will have an ever wider and wider audience. And now I'm glad to say that includes you, the listeners to Thinking in Public. 
Again, I want to thank my guest, Professor Robert Lewis Wilkin, for joining with me. If you enjoyed this episode of Thinking in Public, you can find over 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mogler.